This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavilla, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. This is episode 10, wow, Dr. Jana. We made it to number 10. We're almost as valuable as a new iPhone. It's TSOS <laughs> <Sure>. 10. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing quite well. Quite well. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. good. I had you a look... very relaxing Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, you look good. Week. You look energetic. You look yeah. spry. I slept. You slept. I rested. That's yeah. awesome. Good to know. You? I'm very chill. You know me. I'm, mm, I'm always chill. I'm always chill. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of excitement. Like I've said before, I live vicariously through you. <laughs> you live the adventurous life. And I'm like, ooh, that's so cool. But yeah, no. So we have a jam-packed show. We're going to obviously discuss men behaving badly because that's sort Duh. of like what we do. But who are we going to talk to when we go deeper today? Oh, we're talking to a scientist from University of Glasgow to talk about sexual dysfunction and low sexual functioning. Why are you looking at me like that? Because that's what people in long-term monogamous relationships have to deal with, right? What are you trying to say? <laughs> wow. Jeez. The science of sex. Foreplay. Charlie Rose. Bill O'Reilly. Harvey Weinstein. Jeremy Piven. Garrison Keller. Louis C.K. Kevin Spacey. Brett Ratner. Al Franken. And now, Matt... Lauer has joined the fray. What is going on? Yes, you've joined the club of creepy old white dudes who don't know how to handle power. I know you don't watch a lot of TV, but you know who Matt Lauer is, right? Uh, Yes. You have a pretty good idea that he's one of the bigger TV stars on the planet? Not a pretty good idea, but I've heard of him. I don't watch TV, but yes, the Today Show. I've heard of the Today Show. Good. He's the host of that show. He's been doing that show for 20 years, and he was abruptly fired this week. Basically, what happened was, on Monday, an employee of NBC went to HR and said that years ago at the Olympics... She had a consensual relationship with him that began then, and it's continued afterwards. After that, the floodgates opened. Simultaneously, Variety and the New York Times were preparing exposés about Matt Lauer. So, the combination of this woman going to HR and these two major publications going at NBC looking for information triggered his firing in almost immediate fashion. But she said it was consensual. Yeah, it was. I guess she felt she was forced into a consensual relationship because oh. of his power. Oh, I see, I see. And that's what's happened with a lot of women. Several women have come out and said he's been a pig behind the scenes. One said that she walked into his office and he exposed himself. Another, he, What is up with these yeah. guys exposing themselves? Another, he gave a sex toy to a woman and showed her how she should use it. So there's just been a laundry list of really creepy things. He used to play Mary Fuck Kill behind the scenes with people. The creepiest one of them all was in the New York Times where a woman said she was invited to his office that had a secret button where he would close the door. Did oh. You, yeah, he had, a, he had a sort of like super villain button at his desk <laughs> where he would close the door shut so no one would be able to get in. Wow. So he invited her in, asked her to remove move her blouse, and then had sex with her. She passed out. Instead of waking her up, he grabbed an assistant to take her to a nurse. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, this guy is just Whoa. a pig and a half. So, And again, that was a, a, not, okay. not, not a forced situation, but basically these women had no choice but to say yes to Matt Lauer, who is the king of the Today Show and NBC News. And the fact that the scary part, he's got three kids. And he's got a wife, and I'm sure that relationship has probably been strained for years. There's always been reports of it. Like, she lives out in the Hamptons full-time, and he lives in Manhattan, and he only goes out there in the weekends. He has three kids, all under 16. Yeah, but all these people have kids. Like, that's nothing... That's not, the, that's not the scariest part. I don't think that's the scariest part at all. The scariest part is all those women who got abused and coerced for all those years. His kids probably have not suffered any of that. I mean, most of these people don't actually offend against their own children. I'm saying the poor kids is that they thought their dad was their hero, and now it turns out that he's oh, well. a scumbag, sure. and their lives have been a complete lie. Yeah, but you can say that about pretty much any of these guys who have kids. Yeah, guess. Right? How, how is this any different than all the other ones? No, I know. It's true. <laughs> so how can these people be good parents but then be horrible human beings? Oh, well, I don't know if they're good parents necessarily, but th- those things are very different, how you're going to treat your kids, and whether you, especially whether you're going to sexually assault your kids versus other people. We tend to put our kin in our inner circle and we treat people in our inner circle very differently than the people outside that inner circle. That's a pretty human thing. So it's not at all surprising to me that you would have one way of behaving with the people closest to you and a different way of of treating and behaving Mm -hmm. with the people who are not 
closest to you. Do you think that could be almost a, be a sociopath? Like a way that you can just be completely numb to anyone else's feelings? I mean, it's all a matter of degree. We all, yeah. as, as humans, it's been pretty standard practice in the human history to kill and rob and fight with other tribes and not do the same with your own tribes. So the in-group, out-group psychology is not psychopathic at all. It's just very human. We don't have the psychological capacity to treat every single human being on this planet with the same amount of compassion and whatever love and care. And in fact, we have come to a point in our world, in our, in our history, in our development, where we are trying to be more of that. We're trying to institute more of that. But that's not what the evolutionary history of the human species has necessarily been. It's been very much in-group, out-group oriented. You treat in-group one way, you treat our group a different way. They do not follow the same kind of moral rules and standards that the people who are in your inner circle uh, Interesting. Do. I've never heard of that before because immediately we jump to like, oh, it's some sort of mental illness that you would be nice to a, a host of people, but then treat other people just like complete shit. Of course, of course. That's why I said it's a matter of degree. Yeah. So it's one thing to not care as much about a starving child in Africa as you care about your own child starving, like yeah. obviously. And it's a different thing to actively work to take food away from that child in Africa or something yeah. like that, or, or, or actively harming that, that child. It's a matter of degree. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that we as humans have this ability to treat different people differently depending on how close to us they are. And then for some people who have these um, either psychopathic tendencies or just aggressive tendencies or low empathy and compassion for, for humans in general, they are, are much more likely to take these things to the extreme of actually actively abusing someone who's not in their inner circle as opposed to not particularly caring about the people in the outer circle. All right, well, can we move away from something dark like sexual harassment to something, you know, a little more cheerier and brighter? Like, how about sexual dysfunction? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure that's a little lighter or well, cheer more cheerful. Well, I'm trying to get away from harassment. It's, my se- it's the best <laughs> I can do in this situation, okay? Well, yeah, it's uh, certainly less dark, but still not the most cheerful aspect of sexuality, low sexual functioning and dysfunction. Yeah. All right, so you're coming board on my team now, right? It's slightly less bad. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you very yeah. much. Let's go. The Science of Sex Goes Deeper. Over the last three years, several studies have been published on the sexual functioning and dysfunction among UK residents. They're all based on the NATSAL-3, which is a nationally representative sample of over 15,000 men and women ages 16 to 74 in Britain. The questions included everything from lack of interest in sex, orgasm difficulties, erection difficulties, lubrication difficulties, dissatisfaction, distress, and seeking help about sex. So here with us today to discuss how prevalent these sexual difficulties are among men and women and what factors are associated with it is Dr. Kirsten Mitchell, the lead author on most of these studies. Kirsten Mitchell is a senior research fellow at the Social and Public Health Sciences Unit at the University of Glasgow, where she leads a theme of research on families and intimate and sexual relationships. She actually led the sexual function component of the third version of the British NATSAL and designed the first measure of sexual functioning specifically tailored to this population survey. She's a co-editor of the textbook Sexual Health a public health perspective, which offers a multidisciplinary and broad-based perspective on sexual health. A social scientist by background, her work focuses on social, cultural, and behavioral influences on sexual health and on identifying public health-focused solutions to preventing and addressing sexual health problems. Dr. Kirsten Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. So you've been focusing a lot on sexual difficulties in your work. Why this topic? For most of my career, I've been a public health researcher focused on sexual health. And I was drawn to sexual function and well-being because for me, it's at the heart of what sex is really all about. So experiencing pleasure, feeling close to someone, intimacy. And yet in public health, we actually rarely talk about sexual function. We're comfortable talking about unplanned pregnancy, STIs, and even sexual violence. But we talk much less about um, function and pleasure, um, although I have to say that's changing recently. So that was of interest to me that there was a kind of silence around it. And as a social scientist, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in the taboo. So that's kind of what drew me to it. Good. It's been great having you and your research out there on this topic. Uh, a lot of the studies that you've published and that we'll be talking about are based on this one large data set that you've been using, the NatSAL3. Can you tell us a little bit about this data set, about its pros and cons? 
Yep, sure. So NATSAL stands for the British National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles. And the first survey was undertaken in 1990 in response to the UK's emerging HIV epidemic. And then that followed uh, with a second survey 10 years later in 2000. And then the most recent survey, NATSAL 3, was undertaken in 2010. So together the surveys span 30 years. And if you combine the data from all three, the youngest participant in NATSAL 3 and the oldest participant in NATSAL 1, we're actually looking at changes in patterns of sexual lifestyles over the past 60 years in Britain. So they're they're among the largest surveys of sexual behaviour in the world. In NATSAL 3, we had around 15,000 respondents between 16 and 74 and we randomly we selected our participants by randomly sampling households by postcodes so I think you call it zip codes in the US and then arriving at a household um, individuals were chosen at random by a trained interviewer who then interviewed them in their home using a laptop and when they got to the most sensitive um, questions in the survey they handed over the laptop so the participant could complete those questions themselves. To minimize maybe people not feeling comfortable disclosing sensitive information in, in person, right? Absolutely. And, and sort of research has shown that if you allow um, participants to self-complete those sensitive questions, you get better reporting of the, the more uh, sensitive behaviours. Um, yeah, so in terms of the pros, it would definitely be the large representative data set. Um, and I guess the con is the fact that it's an omnibus survey that so covers a really wide range of sexual health topics, from sexually transmitted infections to how people learn about sex. So because of that, there's not space to go into any one particular topic in too much detail. It doesn't sound like you were thorough at all here, Dr. Kirsten. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a very big team um, with a great number of um, highly skilled scientists uh, working in the survey. So, you know, it's a real um, brilliant survey to, to be working on. So a lot of the papers that, that you're publishing have to do with, as we mentioned, sexual dysfunction or, or low sexual functioning. And in the NatCell 3, there were questions about eight different sexual function problems that people may have experienced over the last three months. So what are the kinds of functioning and then lack of functioning are we talking about here? In NatCell 3, we measured an overall concept of sex function, which included questions about sexual problems, but also about people's relationship and how they rated their sex life overall. And the specific problems we asked about, uh, whether they lacked interest in sex, whether they lacked enjoyment, whether they felt anxious during sex, whether they felt physical pain as a result of sex, whether they felt no excitement or arousal, whether they found it difficult to reach a climax or experience an orgasm or took a long time to reach a climax despite feeling excited or aroused or whether they reached climax too quickly so we'll call that premature ejaculation. Uh, for women only we asked whether they had an uncomfortably dry vagina and for men we asked whether they had trouble getting or keeping an erection. So a range of problems and these came out of previous research and also some interviewing that we did uh, in preparation for the survey um, as to the kind of problems that people said troubled them most. And then if people had experienced any of these for three months or more in the past year, were there any follow-up questions? Yeah, so if they reported one of these problems, we then asked them how long they'd experienced the problem, um, how often the symptoms occurred, and whether and how much distress they felt about the problem. So is this like the biggest shitty sex survey ever? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it. Well, there's a number of national surveys that have included these questions so uh, or questions like them. So we do have a bit of comparison across different countries as well. You should have put that on the cover. Shitty sex survey. <laughs> Probably would have gotten a lot of attention, Dr. Kirsten. <laughs> so you found that, as defined, sexual function problems were kind of common, right? Yeah, we found that 51%, so around half of the women and 42% of the men, reported one or more sexual function problem lasting three months or more in the last year. And 22% of women and 14% of men reported uh, two or more problems. That's a lot. That's, that is a lot, but that's without the sort of further questions about severity, which I think we'll come on to later. Does the disparity between sexes have a lot to do with the male ego? Because I, I, I see the numbers how more women will be more than happy to report dysfunction, whereas the guys only about 42%, where maybe that number could be a little higher. <laughs> 
I'm not sure about that, what the, the difference in the, in the gender. Yeah, it could be just that women are perhaps more willing to report or that a lot of people currently do sex as less satisfying for women or they can't, there are more women having the kind of sex that doesn't really um, give them so much pleasure or enable them to have an orgasm or... Um, is actually painful. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about the most common ones in men and women. What did you find? So the most common in women was lack of interest in sex, which was um, just of a third. And that was followed by difficulty reaching a climax or an orgasm, 16%. Uh, vaginal dryness at 13%. And then lack of enjoyment at 12%. And then among uh, men, in fact, the most common problem was also lacking of interest in sex, and 15% of men reported that. Also then reaching a climax more quickly than desired was the same, 15%. And then difficulty getting or keeping an erection at 13%. So this might come as a surprise a little bit with the men in particular. I think a lot of people think that maybe the most common issue for men would be erectile dysfunction, right? Not being able to get or keep an erection, and that something like lack of desire, that's a women's issue, right? All men want to have sex all the time. And yeah, that's, I, think, no. I think it is quite surprising. And, and actually in our uh, survey, it was higher than um, it was reported more often than it has been in other surveys. And that might be, and Joe's talking about the, the, the ego issue, whether these days it's actually more acceptable for a man to admit that they're not so interested in sex. Now, was there a correlation with age and the different problems being kind of becoming some more prevalent, some becoming less prevalent with age? Yeah, there was. So our overall measure, which looked at sexual function overall, we found that overall sexual function uh, declined with age as you go up each age group. That's everyone's fear about aging, Mm -hmm. or not the only one, but one of the fears about aging is that you're going to lose it, right? Dying is first, John. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. dying is the (laughs) worst. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and in fact, the the problem that probably correlates most strongly with age is erectile difficulties in men, um, and so we saw that rise from eight percent in the youngest age group, that's sixteen to twenty-four year olds, uh, right up to a third of men in the oldest age group, sixty-five to seventy-four year olds. From eight um, to thirty percent, yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, it's a big jump. That makes yeah, sense. It's quite a rise, and then for women, the problem that um, showed the biggest increase was um, vaginal in, uh, dryness, which increased from nine percent to twenty percent, um, and then la- also lacking interest for women increased, but not quite so much, from twenty-five percent to thirty-four percent in women. Just in women, yeah, yeah. So, some of these are related to menopause and physical changes in the body, right? Like the dryness. Yes. Yeah. Lacking interest may also be just to do with changes in lifestyle. Often um, as women um, age, increasingly they have partners who have erectile difficulties and it can go both ways, but sometimes that can lead perhaps to a, a woman to um, kind of put less importance, uh, you know, in, the, in, her, in their sex life and find that they're um, desiring sex less. Is there something to look forward to with aging? Mm-hmm. Are some of these issues becoming less prevalent? <laughs> no, if you're saying die young, John, it's, it's not worth it. Well, there is, and particularly uh, for, for women. Um, actually, most things get better for women. Anxiety um, during sex decreases from 8% to 2%. Painful sex declines. The reported painful sex uh, from 10% to 5%. The number of women reporting difficulty reaching climax declines from 21% to 14%. And also reaching climax too soon from 4% to 1%. So actually for women, more problems tend to get better with age or reported less commonly as you move up the age group. And for men, the key one is uh, premature ejaculation or reaching a climax too quickly, which declines from 17% to 11%. What do you think is going on there with the women? Is that something about women learning more about their bodies and getting rid of some of the shame that they might have around sexuality? Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to say. I mean, again, we didn't specifically ask this in the survey, but I think when you're more able to ask for and and, uh, the the kind of sex that gives you pleasure, that can really help to improve things. But yes, as you say, when you feel more relaxed, you feel more relaxed about your body um, and you feel more relaxed about sex. And many of these things come with with age and experience. You mentioned partners and people having partners with difficulties and that probably affecting your own sex life and sexual functioning to some extent. So for those in relationships, you also asked about some 
partner-related issues. What were some of these partner-related problems that may affect people's sexual functioning? So we asked, for those who said they'd been in the same uh, relationship for the past year, we asked them about whether they shared the same level of interest in sex as their partner, whether they shared the same likes and dislikes, and whether their partner had had um, any sexual difficulties in the last year, and then whether they felt emotionally close to their partner during sex. So the good news is that most people do report feeling emotionally close to their partner, the vast majority. Mm -hmm. However, they do, yes, they say that they feel emotionally close. But one in four said they didn't share the same level of interest in sex as their partner. And around 10% said that their um, partner didn't share the same sexual likes and dislikes. So about 25% having a discrepancy in sex drive and about 10% having differences in likes and dislikes. Yeah. Which makes sense about a relationship. Depends on the day, the week, or, you know, the, you know, it's like food. You don't both always like the same food. <laughs> and sometimes you don't always have the same sex drive at the same time. It's all about timing, right, Doc? <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, one of the key things that we found was important in that style was being able to talk about sex with a partner. So when you can discuss these issues and you can... Um, talk about them between each other and and openly discuss them and think about what the reasons may be and just kind of work around them, then they don't have to become a big issue for the relationship. But but if it's difficult for the two people to actually acknowledge what's happening and and talk about it openly, then these problems can become bigger. It's funny too, Doc, about these studies that we discuss week in, week out. It always comes back to communication. No matter what it is, communication is such a key and just, it seems like people just aren't talking with each other. Yes, I would would agree with that very much so. But you can solve everything with communication, like the, the discrepancy in sex drive. Let's say you and I are dating and I want to have a lot of sex and you don't and we talk about it and like I really want to have a lot of sex and you're like yeah but I really don't and we talk about it right. but why am I always the one that doesn't want to have a lot of sex and you are <laughs> I don't you're like you're the one in like 22 <laughs> plus year monogamous relationship see what I gotta put up with Dr. Kirsten all the time <laughs> let's go back to that if, if there was communication where you said you needed more me knowing that you need that more as opposed to you huffing and puffing or passively aggressively sure, sure, sure. doing be better things better if we communicate it yeah. but just because we communicate it doesn't necessarily solve the problem we might still end up being well I don't want to live without sex and you're like yeah but I really don't want to have sex so it's at least it's helpful I'm, I'm, I'll go there no doubt yeah. no doubt Kirsten you're not a therapist are you could you help us out through, through our issues here <laughs> I was just thinking that myself I'm not a therapist <laughs> okay well luckily we're not in a no. relationship what with do you mean a, luckily <laughs> what is that supposed to mean with with uh, this big sex dis- oh, desire okay. discrepancy gotcha gotcha okay Oof. Okay. Any anyway, we digress here. <laughs> okay, so you found these relatively high percentages of people, 50% of women, 40% of men, reporting some issue around their sexuality lasting three or more months. Was this a sort of dissatisfaction for people? Were, were people unhappy and distressed about their sex lives? Less so than the number of uh, men and women that reported problems. So 50% of men and 12% of women say they were dissatisfied and 10% of men and women say they were distressed. So I think what we can take from that is when we just ask about problems per se without you know, going into the severity of them, um, people can kind of live with these problems. So they report them, but they're not necessarily distressed about their sex life or uh, dissatisfied. Can you talk a bit about that need to distinguish between some of these mild and transient difficulties as opposed to diagnosable sexual dysfunction? So the, the challenge of distinguishing mild difficulties from clinical dysfunction has uh, troubled psychiatry for many years. And it's common not just to um, disorders like sexual dysfunction, but to other psychological disorders, like when does sad become depressed, for instance. So it's something that um, psychiatrists in many fields have to, and psychologists have to kind of think about. If we set the bar too low, then we could end up pathologizing people, so diagnosing them with a disorder or dysfunction when, in fact, they might just have a transient problem, perhaps they're in an unsatisfactory relationship. But on the other hand, if we set the bar too high, then we might miss people who do have difficulties that are really upsetting them and, and that are in need of help. It's also important to bear in mind that surveys such as NatSAL, we can measure the prevalence of problems with sexual function, but we can't really say who fits the diagnosis because we don't have the space to ask all the clinical information that we'd need to make a diagnosis. 
Right. And there are other criteria, right, that we need to apply before we can diagnose someone with a um, clinical level of disorder. Can you talk about some of these criteria? Yeah. So the, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is the kind of psychiatric Bible. Um, and in the latest version, that's for the DSM-5, the um, uh, American Psychiatric Association added another two criteria to the distress criterion that was already there. So one was that symptoms should be present for at least six months. The other was that symptoms should be present on all or almost all occasions, so 75 to 100% of the time. How does this change things? Yeah, it's really about trying to improve precision in diagnosis and reduce the chance of overdiagnosing people. Were some of the issues, some of the sexual problems that people were experiencing more likely to be perceived as distressing than others? So for women, um, among the women who report uh, feeling physical pain as a result of sex, 46% experience it as um, fairly or very distressing. So, And that's almost, almost twice as likely to, to report pain as distressing as to report lacking interest in arousal as distressing. Um, and then for men, trouble getting or keeping an erection is most commonly reported as distressing. 41% of men reporting the problem said they felt fairly or very distressed. What was the least distressing there? The least distressing was uh, lacking interest in having sex. which was So for both genders, lacking interest was kind of not as distressing as some of these more physical issues? Yes, that's right. So although lacking interest in sex is the most common problem that men and women report. It's less commonly reported as distressing as some of the other problems. I think the ones that really preclude sex from taking place are particularly distressing. So that's why pain is particularly distressing and, and difficulty getting erection because it can feel for those people that the you know, just the possibility of having any kind of sexual activity is just seems really, really difficult. Right. It's something um, that they want to do and can't do their bodies are preventing them from doing something they want to do whereas this is just something like i don't want to do it and that's not that big of a deal although still you know over one in five women do find lacking interest in arousal very or fairly distressing so it can be um can be very distressing, particularly, I think, if you're in a relationship and you feel that that pressure. Talking about defining some of these things and, and when they become a problem or not become a problem. So luckily in, in the NATAL, people were asked questions that speak to these what are called morbidity criteria for diagnosing something as sexual dysfunction. So you had asked people whether something lasted six months or more, whether the symptoms occurred always or almost always when they were trying to have sex and uh, whether they were fairly or very distressed about it. So what happens when you apply all of these additional criteria of distress, severity and duration of symptoms to the have you had the symptom and what what percentage of people actually would be diagnosed with sexual dysfunction as opposed to the people just kind of experiencing some of these issues? So in this particular analysis, we just focused on the problems that um, can equate the problems that we measured that equate to a DSM diagnosis. And so for men, that was trouble getting an erection, difficulty reaching climax, reaching climax too quickly and lacking interest in sex. So we found that 38% report one or more of these problems. But when you take all the three morbidity criteria into account, that prevalence decreases to 4%. So it's quite a drop when you restrict it to those who meet the criteria of uh, distress, symptoms for six uh, months or more and symptoms happening um, occurring often and very often. And then for women, we, we combine two of our problems because there's a new diagnosis in DSM-5 which sort of combines female uh, interest in arousal disorder. So we have this combined interest in arousal disorder, difficulty reaching climax and then experiencing pain. 23% of women reported one or more of those problems but that then reduced to 4% when we took in, into account all the three morbidity criteria. All right, so these pretty high numbers of like 40 or 25% of people having some of these maybe mild or transient or not particularly distressing issues come down in both sexes to about 4% of actual sexual dysfunction. Yeah, and I think that we're getting a closer approximation to sort of the likely prevalence of people who have um, clinically diagnosable dysfunction. That's still, I mean, it sounds like a low number compared to the numbers we've been talking about before, but it's actually it's a huge number when you think of, um, you know, the US population, the UK population. That's a, that's a lot of people. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that is a lot of people. <laughs> and of these diagnosable people, I guess, how many of them 
have sought help from professionals or, or other sources? Yeah, so in this analysis, we just looked at those who'd sought help from a professional source. So that's a general practitioner that we call those in the UK or um, a psychologist or psychiatrist or a, a therapist. So uh, about a third of men and women who reported these kind of diagnosable or severe problems had sought help in the last year. The way we asked the question we, all we know is that they help, sought help about their sex life. So we didn't ask specifically problem by problem. So that's still sort of two thirds who have reported these severe problems who haven't sought help in the last year. And that may be because they sought help previously or are now on, on, um, on medication or have finished a course of therapy. Um, or it may just be people who don't know where to look for help or don't feel able to ask for help or, you know, experience other barriers seeking help. I think people are still hung up or afraid to even ask anyone about sex. That's why you have that Mm -hmm. two-thirds number. I think people are just like, I have a problem here, but I have nowhere to go to. You know, they feel helpless, so they decide decide not to do anything. Yes, I'm sure that's very true. Um, And again, it's back to this issue of communication and um, can they even first raise it with their partner and talk about it within the relationship or even among friends, you know, we might talk about other aspects of our sexual health, like, you know, what method of contraception we're using or even whether we've been to the clinic to get a checkup for an STI. But people don't generally talk about their sexual function problems. They don't talk about these very intimate aspects of their sex life generally, um, you know, with friends and family. So that can make it quite quite tricky. Um, although, you know, we I think... The internet is, is uh, I'm sure, uh, helpful for many people in, in the fact that they can at least uh, Google some of these things and find out about them through that way. Do, do these sexual difficulties correlate with one another? So if a person has one, are they more likely to have other ones too? There is some overlap. Um, so for amongst men, um, uh, a third of those who said they lacked interest in sex reported one of the other severe problems. And around 11% of those who said they climaxed too soon reported another problem. And then among women, 72% of those with interest in arousal disorder also report another problem. And yeah, so very high. And I think particularly with those kind of the overlap with problems with lack of interest and, and you can kind of understand how that might happen because... If no, it makes having, sense. If the woman's yeah. having painful sex, she doesn't want to have sex anymore. <laughs> Yeah, so so it kind of becomes and probably becomes a bit of a a vicious cycle. What are some factors that have emerged in the Natal or in other studies as associated with low sexual functioning? And are these factors that differ across sexual dysfunctions? Like, does each sexual dysfunction have its own unique correlates? Or can we talk about some general factors, personal, interpersonal, relationships, societal, whatever, that kind of seem to go hand in hand with with having low sexual functioning? Yeah, so we've already talked about have different, quite different patterns according to age. For low overall sexual function, so if you look at the overall picture, um, there's a number of factors that are associated with reporting low overall sexual function. They include relationship breakup, being unhappy in a relationship, finding it difficult to talk about sex with a partner, having been diagnosed with an STI, reporting experiencing sex against your will, among men uh, reporting that you've paid for sex, and among women reporting more partners. So that's across the overall sexual function score. Um, Among most of the individual problems, your general health can be important. So if you have um, a number of chronic conditions, whether or not you're taking medications, uh, there's a number of medications that are known to interfere with function. And then there are also factors that are then uh, specific to the individual problem. So, for instance, uh, the attitudes that you have about sex can be important for your level of interest in sex among women. Also, having young children in the household is associated with uh, lower levels of interest in sex among women. And then I'm having a dog because I know that <laughs> with, with dog have anything to do with it. I know people have a dog and it sometimes screw things up. Uh, I know people who own a dog are healthier. I don't know how if it has any impact on their sexual health. You, you didn't ask but, about um, dogs in the house. No, we didn't. No. I was asking for a friend. That's why. <laughs> Generally, they don't keep up, keep you up at night okay. like children do. That's true. <laughs> and then menopausal status is associated with vaginal dryness and painful sex in women. So, so there are a few factors that are um, particularly associated with specific problems, but then quite a range that just have um, an association with 
your sexual function overall. You also published a paper on the sexual difficulties of the youngest participants in NATSAL, the ones aged 16 to 21. How are the youths different from the total sample? Is there something unique and specific about uh, young people's sexual dysfunction <laughs> compared to the, the older people's sexual mm. function? Or the general sample? Yeah, so we were keen to do that because I think if, when most people think of sexual dysfunction, if they think of it at all, they generally see it as something that affects older people. And I think that may be partly to do with, you know, the adverts you see for Viagra. They're generally older couples that are used to kind of raise awareness. Um, so we were keen to see whether these problems also um, appear in the youngest age groups as well, um, because really there's been very little research done, done in this area. And, and as a result, we find that um, sex education, for instance, you know, they'll, uh, it'll teach young people around, about how to protect themselves from an STI or how to avoid unplanned pregnancy, but not necessarily um, about sexual problems they might experience. So we found that a third of men experienced one or more of these problems, and 9% said that they experienced one of the problems and were feeling distressed about the problem. And then for women, 44% experienced one or more problems, and 13% reported um, a problem that they felt distressed about. So in fact, it's not that dissimilar to um, the prevalence of problems being reported by older adults. But I think that we need to do some more research, I think, on this to, to find out how these problems sit with other issues that young people might face, you know, when they're starting out and just becoming sexually active because it may be that these problems are are less important than maybe some other issues that they face what were what was the top what was the number one dysfunction for young men, <laughs> men and women uh, so the number one was coming too quickly so premature ejaculation followed by low desire and then um, erectile difficulties for men and for women the, the common problems the most common problems were lacking interest and difficulty reaching um climax or an orgasm. It's funny that young men would stress about that because that's sort of like the old joke of like not being able to control yourself you go so fast but like that that they're stressing about it. To me it was just like a rite of passage like I'm really bad at this until I figure out what I'm doing but I guess guys are really do get distressed about it. Yeah but I think I think there's, there's a lot of pressure on young men to be able to perform I think um, that they feel you know in order to demonstrate their 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 prowess as a, as a young man, yeah. their masculinity exactly, and yet a lot of men, uh, of young men, um, we know, you know, start out not really knowing what they're supposed to do, what sex actually involves. And, yes, and, um, I agree. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think maybe the the younger people now were sort of like in a hypersexualized world and, you know, everyone's always talking about sex and whereas like me, a Gen Xer, when I was a teenager, it was always like, oh, okay, I'm I'm not very good at this. But now there's so much pressure to, be, to perform and be, you know, the best self that you can be possible. Do you think that a lot of the, the younger generation are putting more pressure than they really should when it comes to sex? Yeah, I think it's possible. It's very difficult to know. You know, it's a huge change, isn't it, from, um, you know, say the 50s where a couple might get married first and um, have had absolutely no talk about um, sex education up to that point and no expectation whereas uh, young people today yeah they're exposed to many different versions of good sex through the through media celebrity culture you know pornography and yet they may feel that some of that is not realistic or they're not sure how that actually plays out in, in real life relationships so the pressure to perhaps uh, make out that you do know what you're doing is, I'm sure, um, uh, very strong. But I, I suspect it's always been there, particularly for men. Yeah, I think, especially with, with premature ejaculation or something like that, you, you watch porn and you watch these porn stars just go on and on yeah. and on and on for like an hour without coming. And of yeah. course, if you're a 16, 17-year-old boy, you're like, I should be doing that too, <laughs> not come in one minute. Yeah. So... I think that probably puts a lot of pressure on guys to perform. Yeah, I agree. And also some some other things like I used to do these Periscope, a live uh, video streaming kind of sex education with Q and A's where people would ask questions. And a common question that I would get is about the size of their load, like the si oh. like how much they came. That was a source of 
of anxiety and pressure for a lot of these guys because they were watching porn and seeing these really big cum loads and they felt like they weren't being masculine enough if they did not produce a certain wow. amount of cum or if they didn't shoot that cum far enough. <laughs> like Jeez. those kinds of things wow. were becoming sources of like masculinity and physical sexual prowess indicators. That wasn't in the survey, cum loads, uh, Kirsten? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. All right. Maybe the next one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think um, there's all sorts of anxieties as well about this, you know, the size of, of the penis and all these kind of things that, and and, and that it's often difficult to, to know who who they can ask about it. And, and and many many people. And I think a big part of the issue is for people experiencing problems is many of them actually just need reassurance. You know, for many of these less severe problems, it's really about reassuring them and reassuring them that actually there's no such thing as normal and that there's no there's no right way to do sex and that they really just need to find out what they like and what their partner likes and, and what gives them pleasure. Yeah. Goes back to communication, Dr. Kirsten, yeah, right? Yeah, keep coming back to that. Amen Circle of life. That. All right, let's wrap it up on that note. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. The Science of Sex Afterglow. The president of Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada has officially apologized to a teaching assistant by the name of Lindsay Shepard for a meeting where faculty members dressed her down for showing students a video clip of a debate involving controversial professor Jordan Peterson. So, Dr. Jana, who is Lindsay Shepard and why is she getting so much press? This has been really interesting. It's an event that is, has been developing over the last uh, couple of weeks. And what seems to have happened is Lindsay Shepard is a TA in a communications course at this university. And during one of her classes, she showed this video clip of Jordan Peterson, who, for those of uh, you who don't know him... I don't know is, who Jordan Peterson is. You, you have is. no idea who, who Jordan is Peterson he? is. He's a professor who has a pretty large YouTube presence. He posts video clips of himself talking about various issues and many of his opinions, a lot of those are kind of a commentary type stuff on things that have to do with gender relationships and just gender and various other kind of psychology and social related issues that have been relatively controversial. Now, does he lean on the conservative side or the more liberal side? (laughs) It's uh, hard to tell. I'm not sure what But he has definitely been taken up by the right wing kind of men's rights movement and and other right wing people who agree on some of his positions. And the video in question here is one where he refuses to use gender neutral pronouns. He basically refuses to use anything but he and she for people because he thinks it's radical left-wing ideology kind of thing. And Lindsay Shepard, the TA, just played the video, and I believe she played some other stuff there as well, and she intended to use that as a point of discussion regarding communication and and how we choose to use certain type of language or choose not to use that kind of language, right? So she meant this to be a debate. Turns out that some of the students in her class complained about her showing this video f- saying that this harmed them and that uh, it, it created an unsafe space for them because she had presented this video without a lot of criticism, without setting up the context that this was wrong. And so she got called into a meeting with the professor that she was TAing for, as well as two other professors, where she basically got grilled for creating a toxic climate in the class and even suggesting that she had broken Canadian law for kind of not validating, I guess, people's gender identities or gender pronouns uh, by just showing this clip. And a couple of the professors, two of the three professors even likened her show Showing this clip uh, to her showing a clip of like Nazi propaganda. Oh, geez. So it got really big. And luckily, I guess for her, unlucky for the professors and the university, she recorded on her phone the entire meeting Ooh. secretly without them knowing and then posted it on the interwebs. Wow. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of people who were pretty disturbed about the attempt of the professors to curb her 
academic freedom to show some of these things in class. So she, so she's essentially got in trouble for playing this, but not putting it in context where she was playing something bad. Like she got in trouble for right. le- letting students develop their own opinion on something, or discuss it, or debate yeah. it, and kind of maybe debate some pros and cons to this approach. Or so something. if she yeah. said something like, "Here's a video of this jerk. I don't agree with anything he says. Check this out. <laughs> it would have been okay." Uh, maybe. It sounds like it. It's, it sounds like the fact that it wasn't put in the context of it being bad. Like she just l- let the kids develop their own opinion on it. I guess. I mean, it sounds like that was the main issue that the professors had with it. But it speaks to a larger problem that I think has been happening at universities where dissenting opinions and any uncomfortable topics or anything that might trigger a negative reaction of upset or offense to anybody are now being silenced not debated and refuted with facts and arguments and in a healthy sort of debate, but they're actually not even allowed to be aired. It's shocking what I'm seeing a lot of days because now with with schools, you have these guest speakers who come to Mm -hmm. universities, they visit, they have like little talks, they speak to the students. And unless that person agrees with the politics of the school, they're not welcome. Not even the politics of the school, it's the politics of some of the students or maybe the majority of the students. If you have like a, a predominantly liberal university, then anybody who has a conservative, like a point conservative of view. Yeah, ideology or point of view is not only going to be debated hotly during their talk, but they're actually not even allowed no. to come and give a talk. Protest. Yeah, um, like um, just uh, recently that, that Milo Yiannopoulos mm-hmm. was driven out of a school mm-hmm. he was supposed to speak to. But Oh, that I- has happened so many times. That's just one of oh. hundreds at this point. maybe even thousands of cases where some type of censorship in one way or shape or form has happened at universities almost exclusively coming from the from the left yeah the political left yeah where they are trying to silence all these conservative or or right-wing kind of ideologies uh, that very often not necessarily even right-wing ideologies but anything that disagrees with their point disagrees with their point and very often even slightly more center-left ideologies are being silenced because they don't agree with the radical left. I think it's safe for us to assume that we're both pretty liberal. The the definition of being liberal, I think, to me, is being accepting of all sorts of ideas, but it's sort of taken on a different meaning where it's like, if you're not agreeing with our point of view, then we don't want to hear anything else. Yeah, and the argument that they've been using is that it causes harm. What? It causes emotional, psychological distress and harm and upset and that we need to create these safe spaces where people don't feel harmed emotionally by things that are being said. And I I understand that to a certain degree, but there is a limit to that. Like you can't create the entire world cannot be a safe space where you're never challenged or you're never made to feel uncomfortable by someone else's opinion because there are people with different opinions in this yeah. world. And and universities used to be this place where that was all part of the deal. The deal, yeah. part of the value that the university and university education provided was not just to go into class and learn the things that you're going to learn in class, but also to have to face these differing opinions yeah. and be able to build the kinds of mechanisms to deal with this by excising entirely every every negative or every uh, uncomfortable opinion or person or whatever from your environment you just creating people who are so weak in some way who are so incapable of they're going to school in a vacuum essentially they they yeah. know this is the way to live and this is all there is and anyone outside of it is just evil incarnate but i think it's harming them as well because no they're not building these defenses like psychological mechanisms to deal with their own selves and with these other people so when they leave the university let's say you you manage to create these perfectly safe spaces in the university but mm-hmm. then you leave school and you're thrust in, into the real world and the real world is not a safe space there's yeah. lots of un save aspects of that space that people will have to deal with and I think universities are yeah absolutely harming their students by going along with this radical way of silencing dissenting opinion now the good thing I guess if you believe in academic freedom of speech which I feel very very strongly (laughs) about and I feel strongly about protecting the freedom of speech of those I don't agree with so the good news for that in this context is that the president did end up apologizing as well as the main professor uh, ended up apologizing 
But I think they did that only because she made it public, because she recorded the meeting and then they felt all this pressure. Lindsay herself makes a a good point in this case because she's gotten a lot of support. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that support has come from the right wing part (laughs) of this country, both this this country and Canada. And, and, you know, she said, obviously, the vast majority are right wing and that's fine. But my question is, why doesn't this matter for people like me who are left wing or left leaning, but still believe in being reasonable? And I think that's where I stand. You know, that's where probably you stand that. Yeah, you can you can show these things. You can debate these things. You can have these kinds of conversations and still be liberal, (laughs) left wing kind of person. Here's the takeaway that you should take from me in this. Um, you are the scientist. You're the researcher. You know all about schools. Here's the one thing. I've worked with egomaniacs my entire life, <laughs> and there's nothing egomaniacs hate more is than to be ignored. If these people do not like when like a conservative pundit comes to their school, don't show up. Don't bother them because that will drive them crazy. If you picket, if you protest, they will mm. feed off that. The Ann Coulters of the world feed off the hate that you will provide by rallying and shutting down the streets and throwing right, stuff at right. her. That's a great point. But if yeah. you ignore it, it will kill her inside that she's not pissing anyone <laughs> off. So if you're at a school right now and you hear about some asshole that's coming into, into your school that's going to speak and disagrees with you, Ignore them. Tell everyone you know to leave school that day. And let's see how that person will react to being ignored and shunned. There's nothing worse in the world for these people. Yeah, you're, you're probably right to some extent. And Or go and engage with them on the issues that they are presenting. Absolutely. As, as opposed to just yelling and not letting them speak. All right, like, so, that's, all right so that's a takeaway. If you want, go and debate with the person or two, just ignore them right. and that will end it. I mean, if, if, don't if, try to silence don't that that drives me crazy when i see the video of these college kids with signs and they're setting up human roadblocks stopping the the speaker from coming into town yeah don't do that they love that shit they live (laughs) for pissing you off and the fact that you're showing it and willing to risk your life risking getting arrested for them (laughs) they will feed off that they become monsters because of that so stop doing that that's a good point so yeah on one hand you you feed their egos and on the other hand you're harming yourself Yes. By overprotecting yourself and your fellow students so that you don't grow up into people who can protect themselves. I mean, you hate to use the, the word snowflake. You've, you're pretty much <laughs> living a snowflake existence mm-hmm. where you do not want to hear any bad news. You don't want to speak right. to anyone who disagrees with you. Mm-hmm. So just take that. You know, Take my uh, my advice with a grain of salt. With the sex and science stuff, go to Dr. Jana. But it comes with dealing with egomaniacs who feed <laughs> off attention. Ignore them. All right. <laughs> and on that, we should probably wrap up the show. Yes, what do you let's think? let's wrap up the show. <laughs> if you all like and enjoy the podcast, let us know. If you don't enjoy it, let us know too, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we're, we're kind of like snowflakes when it comes to that. So. <laughs> no, we're not snowflakes. No, no, we no. like to hear dissenting opinions and we can take them. Yes. We, we have thick skins and we can take it. But don't form a human roadblock in front of our studio. Yeah. Don't do that. No. Just maybe put like a one star review if that's <laughs> <laughs> if that's really how strongly you feel against us. But do rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That helps other people find out about it and learn more about the science of sex. All right, that wraps up episode 10. What do we have on episode 11, Dr. Jana? <gasps> episode 11 has something that we have not almost at all touched upon on the podcast thus far, and that's sex around pregnancy. Ooh, are you trying to tell me something? No, I am not pregnant. <laughs> I have no plans of becoming pregnant, okay. but many people out there are. It's an important topic to discuss what happens to sexuality before pregnancy or, or well, before pregnancy. We kind of know what happens to yes. sexuality before. But during pregnancy, they make a baby. Yeah, baby. You, you get pregnant. And then also postpartum, like after pregnancy. And we have an expert basically on pregnancy and post-pregnancy sexuality to discuss that on the show. Cool. Doesn't sound like anyone will be pissed off about that show. I hope not. I mean, they might walk away a little disappointed. Okay. But no human roadblocks. No, hopefully no human roadblocks. All right, cool. We'll see you next week. (laughs) See you, Jana. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex.